Sometimes it's not enough to be reminded that Jesus hasn't left you or forgotten you. We need to declare it over ourselves, over others. No matter the season you may find yourself in, no matter the depths of darkness you're wading through, you can join him in declaring the truth that God is light upon your feet, whether or not you can see the next step, that God is your strength, even though the weight of life seems to be crushing you down. And that when your job, your marriage, your relationship, your health feels like it's coming to a dead end, there is only one God that can make dead things live again. These are his promises and they're the only thing you need to declare over your life. So as you step into this next season or this next moment, you can declare that God's not done with you. He's just getting started. You can declare that the good work that he has started in you, he will surely complete it. You can declare that the same God that parted the seas goes before you, goes behind you. You can declare these promises over your life, over your family's life, over the people passing on the street. You can declare these truths over every circumstance, over every season of your life. You can declare that that every day belongs to him and every new breath belongs to him. Because we have the power of a living God living inside of us. And this is our declaration. On Friday... March 28, 1947, at 6.55 a.m., Bronx bus driver William Similo got into his bus to start his daily route. But then something happened. He decided to take a crazy leap. Fed up with the New York traffic, Similo decided he had enough. Instead of sticking with his daily routine, he headed his bus south, going nowhere in particular. He stopped in New Jersey for a bite to eat and parked in front of the White House and took a, a look around D.C., Three days later, he was in Hollywood, Florida, where he stopped for a nighttime swim. Similo was totally free and strapped for cash. He telegrammed his boss in New York asking for $50, and that's when the cops showed up. Two New York detectives and a mechanic were sent to fetch the runaway driver and his bright red bus. But according to Similo, the mechanic couldn't really drive the bus, so they had Similo drive them back to New York. And when they arrived, William Similo, discovered, William Similo discovered that he had become a legend. People across the country sent him fan mail. Newspapers, became, uh, newspapers portrayed him as a working class hero and his bus driving buddies raised enough cash to cover his legal expenses. Realizing they were the bad guys here, the surface t- transportation system decided not to prosecute. In fact, they gave Similo his job back for the rest of his life. Similo never pulled any more wild stunts. Instead, he kept on driving that bus for 16 more years before finally passing away in 1975. Those three crazy days in 1947 were more than enough adventure for William Similo. Asked why he did it, the, business, the, bus, the busman would explain, this New York traffic gets you. It's like driving in a squirrel cage. He was also quoted as saying that he just wanted to get away from 
everything. The story is adapted from William Similo, the runaway bus driver by Nolan Moore. What a great story and well there he is, the runaway bus driver who made history, William Similo. And let me start with a question this morning if I can and thinking about his, his story, maybe this ties in a little bit, but here's the question, are you living for today or are you living for tomorrow? How about that question, right? Are you living for today? Are you living for tomorrow? What was the bus driver living for? Well, I guess those three days he was living for today. He was in the moment, right? He was seize the day, carpe diem, right? And he wasn't too concerned about tomorrow. And it's fascinating how he became a hero and maybe why. I wonder, do you look at his story? Do you look at William Similo and see a criminal? Do you see a victim? Do you see a hero? How do you see William Similo when you look at his life and his situation? And, uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's the, the interesting thing. Maybe possibly you envy him because you wish you had the boldness to make some kind of grand move in your life like that. Like you just want to skydive just once out of that plane, but you just can't get the nerve. And here's this guy who just, just takes off. And maybe this is why William Similo became a hero to so many because they could relate to a guy who just snapped, took matters into his own hands and escaped from reality, at least momentarily. Back to the question though, are you living for today or are you living for tomorrow? And this is the everyday paradox that you and I face. It is a biblical paradox that we face. It's the paradox of being fully present in this moment while at the same time being totally prepared for eternity and the next moment. So let's talk about that this morning. And this paradox, this message, kicks off a new series called Paradoxology. And paradoxology, well, the truth is paradoxology is actually a word. I didn't even think of that before I started the study. Paradoxology is the study of paradoxes, and there's lots of paradoxes in the Bible we'll talk about in this series. But, but my theme for this series is two words, paradox, which is the contradictions we think of, and then doxology, which is the idea of our worship, right? Those two words come together to make paradoxology. As I said, there's lots of paradoxes in the Bible. The last will be first, the poor will be rich, the humble will be exalted, that we die in order to live. And then there are some other paradoxes we'll see that we don't often consider, like the paradox of, are you living for today or are you living for tomorrow? Merriam-Webster kind of spells it for us like this, uh, as far as what is a, contra, or what is a paradox. It, just a couple of definitions here. One, such as a person, situation, or action having seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. Or two, a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. And somewhere in there, we'll, we, we can see this idea of what we're looking at today, really, you know, the Bible, well, well, let me explain it this way. When you, well, I'll, I'll come back around to this in a minute. But that's paradox. Think about the word doxology, right? You all know what the word doxology is, right? Well, do we really? Well, we know. We've been singing it since 1674. That's when they wrote the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? And so we've been singing that for a long time. And doxology, here's how uh, Merriam-Webster defines doxology, a usually liturgical expression of praise to God. It's putting our worship in words or in songs. 
So, but the idea in this series really is we know our worship is more than just the songs we sing and the prayers we pray and the scriptures we read. We know that, that worship actually is a lifestyle and so that's kind of at the heart of this series. Romans 12, 1 and 2, kind of maybe a, a bit of a theme verse, a couple of verses might undergird this series. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is where we get the idea of lifestyle worship, that worship is not just a song I sing, but worship is actually the way I live my life. And that's the idea behind this idea, this series of paradoxology. It's, it's the paradoxes that we find in Scripture, and then it's my worship, my, doxo- my, my lifestyle doxology as I live out this worship and, and 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 when I bring those together, how do I flesh out these paradoxes as I worship God? It'll make sense as we go through the series. And and here's the phrase that I have used to kind of caption this series. It's navigating the tension in our worship. What does it look like to worship God? And we'll look at it today from this standpoint of of this great everyday paradox, right? Today's paradox is is simply, uh, you know, how do I live out the paradoxes of Scripture in my life? And, And today's paradox is really simply this. It's the paradox between today and tomorrow. And maybe this will help make a little more sense when we think about it, right? Because I could stand up here today and do a message simply on this reality that we need to be present and live in the moment. I could do an entire message just on that, and we'll talk about that today. Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How about this verse? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So, yeah, be present, live in the moment, teaching a a message entirely on that. Then, I could preach a message on this, to focus on tomorrow and to live for eternity. Colossians 3, 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so now it's like, okay, well, do I live for today? Do I live in this moment? Or am I supposed to be focused on heaven and eternity and tomorrow and the future? But don't be focused on the future because the future will work itself out. And so that is where we're at today and both of these mindsets are scriptural and both of them present a bit of a paradox that really isn't a paradox as we walk through this today we will see that they are complementary in realities it's like living for today is my you know left hand and and looking for the future and for eternity and focusing on eternity is my right hand and they complement each other and we will understand that as we go through the message today. Here's our big idea, and it's a great, a big, if you want to get the most out of the year ahead of you, here's the big idea you need to just kind of cling this, put this on your fridge this week, or for all of the year. The abundant life, Christ came to bring us abundant life, right? The abundant life comes from being, being fully present in the moment. If you want to know the abundant life, just be fully present in the moment that is in front of you. Be fully present. Regardless of what's going on, be fully present. And we know, right, the Bible tells us we get those three levels of life. We get spiritual life, we get abundant life, and we get eternal life. And we will see this morning, ultimately, that experiencing the abundant life comes from being fully present as well as being totally prepared, totally prepared for 
eternity. In fact, to be fully present is to be more aware of eternity. That will just see a connection will come up. That The more I live in this moment, the more I will be aware of actually what's going on in eternity. Here's our question, really. How do I live a life then that is both totally present, fully present, and totally prepared? How do I live a life? Four lessons to a fully pleasant, fully present, and totally prepared life. And we're going to be kind of hanging around a little bit loosely in Psalm 90, pulling a few scriptures out uh, that Rick read for us earlier. And um, one thing Psalms 90 does, it, it gives us this juxtaposition between how we have this eternal God and then you have you know, mortal man. It's like, there's like this contrast, like God is eternal and man is mortal. And there's, there's also this kind of this context of like, you, you know, you need to be focused on eternity, but realize your life is flying by and it's zipping right by you. It's like a mist on your windshield. It just disappears that quickly. Psalms chapter 90, let's read a, the first six verses here. It is a a prayer of Moses. It is a Jewish worship psalm with a lot of Jewish overtones and history. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. Jump down to verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that really is the key verse this morning there in verse 12. So how do I live a life then that is fully, both fully present and totally prepared for lessons? Here's the first lesson. We can't live in the past and be fully present in this moment. You simply can't. You can't be fully present in this moment if you are living in the past. Now, he he, he gives a nod here to their history, right? In the past, Moses does, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And so he's looking back, and God had called the Jewish people out as a nation about 500 or so years earlier. He called them out and made them a special nation, and they had a history with him. In fact, they are known, even hundreds of years later, they are known as uh, God is defined, I should say, as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like the first three, you know, fathers of the Jewish people. And God has defined himself in his name that way for hundreds of years. The Jews had the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There was this history that was there. The reality is there's no way I can be fully present in this moment if I am living in the past. Now, what does it look like to live in the past? I think churches struggle with this a lot. They, they really do. There's a lot of churches that can really struggle with this. Churches that have, <clears throat> you know, yet you your traditions and programs and things you've always done a certain way. And, you know, 30 years later, those things aren't working anymore. But you're just living in the past and you're not able to stop and say, what is God doing right now in the moment, in the immediate, in the present? And it's a challenge for churches. We faced this challenge. We really did. Think about this honestly, right? 
Like five or six years ago, when we left that, that building down there and came here, that was really hard for some people. It was really difficult because it's like, but this is who we are. Like we were defined by our building. We had to be reminded that the church is not the building. The church is everybody that comes and gathers and worships and God is doing something right now in the immediate. And so that was a challenge really to sell that building and move down here and yet we realize now how, boy, Thank you, God, for working that out for us. But let me tell you, this doesn't mean that the past is not worth anything, that traditions are all bad. And No, that's not what it means. Let me give you three things that, about the past that are really powerful. We can learn from the past. We need to learn from the past, certainly need to do that. And that is exactly what Moses is kind of invoking here. God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And they have this past history with God. And God has been faithful to them as a nation over and over and over again. And in, in fact, this example of the faithfulness of God to the Jewish people extends to us. Because in Corinthians, Paul is writing, and he's writing about the wanderings of the Jewish people in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And look at what he says. Now, these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. It's like everything Israel went through. We're told that story. It's an example for you and I today. We can learn from their past. We can learn from our past, and that is part of the, the wonder, the beauty of the past. And think, just stop and think. What have we learned when we left that building and came to, what did we learn about God? What did we learn about ourselves and our church? What lessons did we learn in the past when we made that move, when we took that leap of faith? And I, as I was thinking this week and preparing just some of the impressions sometimes you feel God putting on your spirit and soul is like, you know, I'm not done with you yet. Like you move down there and it's like, I'm not done with you. Like you're just getting started as a church. And, and be prepared for the next time God says it's time to take a leap of faith. Not that we leave this building per se, but what next leap of faith will God call us to take? That's the reality. Learning from our past and then we can celebrate our past. We can celebrate in the past. We can learn from the past, celebrate in the past. We talked last week, right, about all those Jewish feast days, like seven Jewish feast days, and we highlighted three of them. But, but those were celebrations of something unique to the Israelite people. Like Passover was a unique celebration of when they escaped Egypt in the dead of night. And then there was the Passover, of, uh, the, 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 excuse me, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze, when they would build those huts every year. And it commemorated when they built huts as they traveled through the wilderness and route to the promised land. And they wandered there for 40 years. And God was faithful. And there's these feasts that remind them. They're celebrating God's work in their midst and God's faithfulness and his victories and accomplishments in their life. And we can celebrate in the same exact way in the same exact way. And then thirdly, we can learn from, we can celebrate in, and we can build on the past. And that's what we're doing as a church. We're just continually building on our rich heritage. This is why it is so important. You know, you sometimes think, how important is doctrine and theology? It's the, it's the foundation of your church. It's knowing what you believe. It's knowing who you are. Like, we believe in the gospel. We believe in who God is. We believe in redemption and salvation and grace and truth. And we believe all of that. It's the foundation of this church, and we're simply building on it. <clears throat> you know, there's something fascinating in the book of Isaiah. There's a verse, interesting verse that intersects here. One of the central victories, if I said to you, what was one of the central victories the Bible repeatedly brings up in regards to the Israelite people? Anybody want to guess what probably the most noted victory is? 
when they crossed the Red Sea. And you find it over and over again in the Psalms and in different places, and God just reminds them, remember when I parted the Red Sea, and remember when you walked through the Red Sea on the dry ground. Listen to this, because what God does in the Bible is repeatedly tells them, remember, 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 remember. But then we get to Isaiah 43, and now they're not dealing with the Egyptians, right? That, that was their struggle with the Egyptians. Now they've got a struggle with the Babylonians here. And listen to what he says in Isaiah 43, 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so, remember, remember, remember when I parted the Red Sea and celebrate that victory and learn from that victory and honor me in that victory. And uh, when, I, when I parted the Red Sea and made the ground dry. Now, forget that. I'm doing something new now, and now I'm going to do the reverse. Now I'm going to take the dry ground and bring water into the dry ground to feed and, and to nourish my people. What a beautiful parallel, and what a, what a simple lesson for you and I today to know that God is always doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing in our midst, and we don't even know what that is yet, but he is continually working. Now, I've tied this whole idea, right, back to the church. But what about us as individuals? Like, same thing. You as an individual cannot live in the moment and seize this moment and be fully present in this moment if you're living in the past. And what does that look like? Well, maybe like this diagram here, right? This guy that's lugging around his anger and his lies and his sin and his hurt and all of that stuff. When we're lugging that stuff around, when we don't process the pain of our past, it really, it really hinders us from living in the moment and moving forward. Maybe it's something like a bankruptcy you went through. Maybe it was a business venture that went under because someone took advantage of you or cheated you in some way. Maybe it is a divorce you experienced and you have yet to process the whole thing. Maybe that divorce is a hurt. Maybe it is a perceived failure that is weighing you down. Maybe you are the one who wronged someone else or committed some sin and you have not been able to wrap your arms around the fact that God's grace is greater than your sin. Just let go of the past. We have to let go. And that's exactly what Paul tells us, right? Look at, think about Paul, right? Paul went out and he murdered Christians. Like they would take a vote. Okay, what should we do with Joe and his faith? And here's what he's doing. And they would have a vote and Paul might vote. Yeah, put him to death. This was kind of Paul's relationship back in the day when he, when he was dealing with those and he was persecuting Christians and Paul gets saved and he's preaching the gospel and Paul says, brothers, I do not consider, Philippians 3.13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew he couldn't live in the moment. He couldn't, he couldn't be present in the moment. And he couldn't even live for eternity if he was chained to his past. And Paul tells us, right, you must, we must let go of the past. Let go of the past. And just remember again the simple rule, the abundant life. The abundant life comes from being fully present in the moment fully present in the moment. So how do I do that? Four lessons, right? How do I live fully present and totally prepared? We can't live in the past, right? And number two, we must learn to manage our time. We must learn to manage our time. 
have to manage our time. <clears throat> Think about that. Psalms 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And this passage really does paint a juxtaposition between the idea that our days are few, we need to manage them well, all while we view them in light of eternity. The reality is today is, is extremely valuable. You know why? Because there's, uh, uh, there's not a lot of it. There's a lesson there, like, right? Um, um, how about, anybody bought any eggs lately? <laughs> yeah, they're expensive. Why are they expensive? There's a shortage of them. There's not a lot of them, so they're more valuable. They're more expensive. And there's a simple lesson there. The less we have of something, the more valuable it is. And so we only have a certain number of days. And so our time is very, very, very valuable. In fact, verse 10, I think that I put it on the screen. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet they, their span is but toil and trouble. And we could... We could, we could kind of um, paraphrase that today. Our lifespan today is more like 80, 90, or 100, not 70 or 80. It's, 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 it's improved. But I, I saw someone this week give an illustration of an hourglass. And it was a really powerful illustration to understand the context here of this verse. Um, verse 3, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your, in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. And there's this idea. Think about what we can learn from a simple hourglass there about time. First, no one knows how much sand is on the top of that hourglass, right? No, we, we think we know how much time's there, but we really don't. Oh, uh, this made me think of the Wizard of Oz, because I think they had a time, an hourglass in the Wizard of Oz, right? And it's like, you have so much time to get this done. It's like, but you never know how much time is on the top of that glass. You think you do, but you don't really know. And then, uh, oh yeah, so let me put it on the screen. No one knows how much sand is on the top of that hourglass. No one knows. Go, well, God does, but we don't know. We think we do. We need to manage our time well. And then the second observation is no matter what you do, you can't stop the sand from passing through. You just can't. It's just going to keep falling through the hourglass, slipping by. Your life goes by so quickly. And I can tell you that. Because I remember preaching that 25 years ago. And here I am today thinking, yeah, I was right. And sometimes you regret things in your life. You look back and think, man, I preached that. Boy, it, it should have shaped my life a little more. And then third... Once the sand is in the bottom, you can never get it back. Once that sand hits the bottom, you can't get it back. It is gone. Time is valuable. It is passing by quickly. And we learn these two simple, powerful realities from the hourglass then, that I need to be fully present in the moment and to be totally prepared for the future when the hourglass runs out and I leave this world. Verse 4. Again, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Years ago, I took this and I, I, I kind of transposed this down in the, into what it looks like. How, how, does this, how does this play out? If a thousand years on earth equals one day in heaven and we live for a hundred years, let me tell you what this looks like. Did I put it on the screen? Okay, a 100-year a lifetime comes down to two hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> in compared to eternity. That's how long you live. I've, I, I remember reading about insects that have like a four-hour lifespan, and I'm like, wow, poor, poor little insect. You know, they don't live very long. Well, two hours and 40 minutes, and that, that comes down to four-second days. Like, 
One, two, three, four. Okay, I'm a year older. <laughs> That's how fast our life goes in, in light of eternity. And, and the reality is, now understand this, that this thousand year to a day paradigm, it's, it's really not a literal thing. It's just to show us the extreme nature of our life in comparison to eternity. Because in comparison to eternity, it's even smaller than that. That's kind of the, the picture that we get when we look at this comparison of a thousand years to one day. Yeah. The challenge that we face then is understanding time the way that God does. And if we did, we would probably make different choices, handle our adversity better, and share Christ more boldly. And the eye-opening thing when you think about that, like four-second days, like, you know, so think about that. We thought 2023 went by, or 2022 went by really fast. In this paradigm, by the time the sermon's over, it'll be 2024. And by the time you get home for lunch, it'll be 2026, and your life is flying by live in the moment seize the moment enjoy the moment and make sure you're planning for eternity the abundant life comes from being fully present in this moment okay third lesson we can't live in the past and we must learn to manage our time and verse 12 again teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom here's something you might not think about did you know this that eternal life begins the moment we are saved like the moment you were saved eternal life began for you like we know right that's one of the when, when we die there's there's those those three forms of life i don't think i put them on here three levels of life yeah there's spiritual life now i am alive to god when i get saved i'm alive to god spiritually abundant life now i have the fruit of the spirit i have i have joy and peace and hope i have abundant life and i have eternal life i'm going to live forever and the reality is just understand that that eternal life that you have received that the moment you were saved most people look at it and think well after i die then i get eternal life and i live forever and let me just clear this up for you it is true. You get eternal life after you die. But understand that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you already died. You already were crucified with Christ and he was raised to life in you and you have eternal life. And someday, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever, your body may wear out and they may put it in a grave, but you're not gonna die. You're gonna keep right on living into eternity. That's the reality. You're, you are a spirit that has a soul. You just live in a body. Your body might wear out. That's fine. But you will keep right on living absent with the body is present with the Lord. Let me prove it to you in Scripture, though. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. You don't come into judgment. There's no condemnation for you if you have Christ. You have passed, you have passed from death to life already. 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. He gave us eternal life. And this, is, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are in Christ Jesus. You have received the gift of eternal life. And one last one, 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul writes, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So yeah, th there's this sense where I'm not 
enjoying life outside of this 365 paradigm in this world, right? I, I'm not enjoying life in eternity and the fullness of eternal life up there in glory, but I do have eternal life, and I'm never going to die again. I'm just going to keep right on living with Christ into all of eternity because I have been crucified with him. Consider four observations here about this, right? That means, you know, what does that mean to you right now that you have eternal life right now? You can now live for and invest in eternity. You can leave an eternal mark on this world. And we have a world full of people who are searching, who are empty, who are climbing the corporate ladders and doing all kinds of great things, trying to find their significance in life, and they're just frustrated. It's like they can't, they just can't find what they're looking for. It's found in eternity. And when you come to Christ, then you can leave an eternal mark. You can invest in eternity. How about this one? I have eternal life because I have the Christ life. See, that's the reality. When you're saved, Christ comes to live in you. You get the life of Jesus. You get the life of Christ. You get the Holy Spirit in, living in you, residing in you. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. And because you have the Christ life, you have eternal life. You have it right now. Watch this one. Did you know this? No one was ever more fully present in the moment than Jesus. Think about that. No one was ever more fully present in the moment than Jesus was. I think that's really fascinating to stop and think about. At the same time, no one ever lived a more eternally, fo he eternally focused, heavenly centered life than Jesus. He was always talking about, you know, the kingdom of heaven, about eternity, about, about what was coming. But he was always present in the moment. The two go hand in hand. It's your right hand and your left hand. They complement each other. And the reality is, Christ is my life. And he knows how to be fully present in the moment. And then finally, one more here. Look at this. Did you know this? Watch this. One day in heaven, I will be fully present in every moment. Like we struggle with it here in this world, right? We struggle with it in the context of 365 days and the seven-day work week and the 24-hour day and the 60-minute, you know, minute or 60-second minute. We struggle to be fully present in the moment. We're going to go to glory someday, and you know what? You are going to be fully present in every single moment. There will be no past to haunt you. There will be no future to worry about. There will be no timetable. There's no time in eternity. You're just in this moment. I've always likened that back to people that, you know, we, we think about people that go to hell and they're in hell for eternity and suffering for eternity and we, we try to, 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 to rationalize that out, what that looks like. But here's the reality. All that is for that person in hell, it's not like they're remembering that they've been there hundreds of years or they've got hundreds of more years. They're just living in one moment over and over. It's just like this moment just never ends. It's one moment where, where they are separated from Christ for all of eternity. And for us, it is one moment for all of eternity when we are in perfect union with Christ and his body and his church and we're living in glory. And yeah, it's an amazing thing to consider. That's what eternity is. It's the, just, just, we're just in this moment. We don't have all the other distractions in life. Let me give you a question before I go to this last point. You want to go home today, take an issue in your life, take an area in your life, take something in your life you're struggling with. Consider this question from two angles. How about this? How uh, does this moment right now impact eternity? 
Whatever you're going through, how does this moment right now impact eternity? Just dwell on that for a while. And then when, when, when you dwell on that for a while, flip it around and say this, how does eternity impact this moment right now? Yeah, that'll kind of play games with your mind a little bit, but it might help you put something in your life into perspective. How does this moment right now impact eternity? And how does eternity impact this moment right now? And the abundant life comes from being fully present in the moment and the more you're in the moment the more aware you will be of eternity so fourth and last lesson this morning we can't live in the past and be fully present in this moment right we must learn to manage our time eternal life begins the moment we are saved and finally number four look at verse 12 again so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom and and we want a heart of wisdom we want we want the divine wisdom that jesus had so that we can approach the life in front of us i want you to understand the attitude that shapes uh our being fully present a moment ago i made this observation right that no one was ever more fully present in the moment than jesus well here's what you need to understand number four fourth lesson being present in this moment is a mindset it is an attitude like my spiritual worship right is to just offer my life to christ and how do i do that i renew my mind i I have to learn to think like christ i have to learn to think like jesus and no one was ever more fully present in the moment than jesus was and no one was ever more you know centered on eternal perspectives than jesus was but all you have to do is look through the Bible in Jesus' three plus years of ministry to get a picture of this. Let me give you one example. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating story. And let's Luke set the stage for us here, okay? Um, Jesus was fully present his entire life. That's on your hand out there. I guess maybe I missed that slide. But Luke chapter 8, let's let Luke set the the context for us here. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And so Jesus has this, uh, uh, this itinerary. He has this agenda. There is this daughter of Jairus who is a ruler in the synagogue, kind of an important person. And he's going there to heal this woman. And on the way to go heal this young little girl, on the way, it's crowded and the crowds are pressing up against Jesus. And there's a woman there who has had this disease for 12 years. It's called an issue of her blood. And it, she had been to countless doctors and no one can help her and so in this moment she decides i just have to make my way to jesus and she finds the ability to reach out and just just touch the hem of his garment as he's passing through this crowd it's a fascinating story and as she does as she touches the hem of his garment she is immediately healed of her disease and her issue of blood dries up it is so incredibly a moment what i love about the story here though and and so what transpires listen to what jesus says here's here's his response after this woman touches him and jesus said who was it that touched me when all denied it peter said master the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you but jesus said someone touched me for i perceive that power has gone out from me 
One of the struggles we have with some of these passages and understanding them is we see Jesus as God. We don't see him as man. We don't see him as I often talk about. He has those limitations. He's not all powerful. He's not all knowing. He set aside his God card. He's living life like you and me. And the Bible repeatedly tells us that Jesus could only do miracles that, that God told him to do, that God gave him the authority to do, and that the Holy Spirit empowered him to do. So in this moment, the Holy Spirit is empowering him to do this miracle. God's giving him the authority. God is using him in this moment. But Jesus is not actively going out to heal this person, right? He doesn't even know. And, and some may disagree, but I really believe Jesus did not know in this moment who this woman was. He just knows someone touched me, power went out of me, someone was healed by my life. But I don't know who. Now, if he had looked around the crowd in their eyes, I think through spiritual discernment, he could have said, oh, it was you. He could have picked her out. But in that moment, he doesn't know. And I think he sincerely asks this question. And what happens is the woman comes up finally and gives herself up and reveals herself and Jesus sends her off in peace with her miracle. And I love this story because it shows us someone, here's Jesus, he's on his way and he's got an agenda, an itinerary, he's going over here to do this and yet he is so fully present in the moment that someone just touches him, someone just bumps him and he is aware, hey, you know what? Something's going on here spiritually. I, I remember years ago in the, in the Experiencing God uh, uh, study, there's a Bible study called Experiencing God, and they teach this principle that anytime someone comes to you or you're in a conversation with an unbeliever and they ask a spiritual question, you know that God is working in their life, that the Spirit is moving in their life, and they are more sensitive to the things of God because they ask that spiritual question. And I think that's really powerful. And this made me stop and think about a lesson that Jesus can teach us about what it looks like to be fully present in the moment. For us as Christians, here's what it means to be fully present in the moment. It means uh, being fully present in the moment is being sensitive to and aware of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and around us. That's what it means to be fully present. Like, like I'm in this moment and God is doing something and, and I might not be aware of it and I might not see what he's up to but I am so fully present, so in tune with the Spirit that when he moves and uses me to touch someone else's life, I am aware of that. That is Jesus' example for us. That's why Jesus came and lived a life like you and me to give us that kind of example of how we can process life, how God can work through us, how the Holy Spirit can use us. So Jesus, just note here how Jesus is fully present. You want one other example of Jesus being fully present? Like, think about this one, right? Jesus, he is hanging on the cross. He has been beaten and whipped, and he's bloodied, and he's, 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 he's being tortured on the cross, uh, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, and most greatly, spiritually. He's just being tortured, and he's dying for our sins. He's took all our sin, all our shame. He's hanging on the cross, and how many remember this conversation as he's hanging on the cross? This should blow our minds. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his home his own home. Listen, listen, anybody, anybody watching Jesus in that context would have forgiven him or would have not expected him to remember his mom. He is so fully present in the moment that as he's going through all this anguish, he sees his mom and he says, my mom needs taken care of. John, make sure you look after my mom. That is being fully present. That just blows my mind. Wow. 
So let me wrap up here today. I'll give you four words and four warnings as we wrap up today about when it comes to this idea of being fully present in the moment. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5, and understand the context of this verse is have this mind, the mind of Christ that went to the cross and hung there and, and, and bled and died for our sins. Yeah. So four words, practice contentment, don't be inflicted with entitlement. Just be content in the moment that is right in front of you. It's hard to be present in the moment if we're not content. If we, if we think there's something missing from this moment, like, yeah, there's something missing here. Or if we feel like we're being cheated in this moment, like I don't deserve this moment. I deserve better than this. I'm entitled to, to something other than this moment. Remember when Paul said this, he said, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I know, I, I know how to be content in every circumstance, Paul said in Philippians 4. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was content regardless of the situation and he was also then fully present in that situation and he was able to find the strength of Christ regardless of the situation, enabling him to do all things things often when we go through adversity right we want to get out of that adversity we want to escape that adversity we want to find a a back door to get out of that trouble we don't like it what if we didn't live with such an attitude that told us we didn't deserve what we were facing but rather an attitude that understood god was always at work had a really interesting question cross my mind at this point as i'm studying it's like how about this will we face any adversity in heaven now of course we would all say, well, of course not. Like, we're not going to, and I don't think we're going to face adversity in heaven. But I was reminded of how God put Adam and Eve in the garden before the curse of sin, put him in the garden to work the garden. Would Adam and Eve ever have ever faced any adversity in their life without the curse of sin? I doubt it. I doubt it. And so I don't think we're going to face adversity in heaven. But here is what, here's the thought that crossed my mind. We know in heaven there's no heartbreak, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, right? But my point is this, what if the issue in this world is not so much the adversity we face, but our ability to face adversity with an eternal mindset? A mindset that allows, that allows me to be fully present in the moment and get the most out of said adversity, knowing that it is making me stronger in my faith, making me stronger as a believer. Most likely, listen, most likely there is no adversity in heaven. But if there were understand that we would see that adversity with an entirely different perspective an eternal perspective that would cause said adversity to not really be adverse you follow me it's like we would look at it and we'd say oh i'm just getting closer to jesus i'm just getting closer to god i'm just learning more about my maker i'm just being filled with more of the glory of god so yeah contentment and entitlement too here's another word know your identity Don't lose yourself in the comparison trap. It's hard to be present in the moment when we don't know who we are. When when we're when we don't when when we're confused about our identity, when we're trying to discover who we are. Because what happens is we try to find other ways to define ourselves in that moment, and we often end up comparing ourselves to other people. It's like, what? I have the identity of Christ. Why would I compare myself to anybody? Why would I not be enough? I heard someone make this observation this week in regards to New Year's resolutions. And I've been on resolutions for many years now. You know, I don't think they're very gospel-centered. I don't think they're very optimal to a way to live your life. They usually fail us. Not that they're wrong to set, but they really do more often than not fail us. There are better ways than setting New Year's resolutions. But here's the point. 
This person made the point, you know why we set New Year's resolutions? Lots of times, because we are comparing ourselves to somebody else. We look in the mirror, there's something about ourselves we don't like, and we're driven to improve ourselves through New Year's resolutions, and oftentimes it's because we're comparing ourselves to somebody else who's, you know, a little better shape or a little more disciplined or, you know, a little more successful in their life. In some way, we want to be more than we are, more healthy, more fit, more disciplined, more likable. At the heart of this, though, is we usually have someone or something we are comparing ourselves to. And just think about that whole paradigm. If you're living your life thinking, boy, I wish I was just more this or more that or more the next thing, you are all of Christ. He is your identity. You just need to walk in your identity. You need to know who you are in Jesus. And so when it comes to that, when it, when it comes to maybe how we approach life and set some of these Here's a few examples. Like, just look at your identity and then formulate your life. I'm a child of God so I can be more confident in 2023. I am loved and accepted so I can be more secure in my relationships in 2023. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, so yes, I want to take better care of my temple in 2023. I have been forgiven, so this year I will be more forgiving. I am holy and righteous and acceptable, so this year I'll present my body as a living sacrifice. That is a much more healthier way. Look at who you are in Christ and say, this is who I am and this is how I will live my life. Third example, live on purpose. Don't live for the superficial. Live on purpose. Don't live for the superficial. It's hard to be fully present when we are living for... that stuff in life that is superficial. When I'm living to, you know, to climb that corporate ladder, when I'm, when I'm living for my career or my bank account or for my personal ambitions or you know, the goals that make me look better in life, when I'm living for all of that superficial stuff, it is hard to be present in the moment. When I'm living on purpose, when I know who I am in Christ, when I'm just living on purpose, it's much easier to be fully present in the moment. And, and, and beyond just self-promotion, I'm living for the glory of God. One last one. Pursue people. Don't be distracted by things. Pursue people and don't be distracted by things. The truth is, as a society, we have never been a more connected and disconnected at the same time. We, we have all our mobile devices, all our social media platforms and accounts, from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram to Telegram to Truth Social to YouTube to Rumble and on and on. We have text messages and emails and phone calls. We've never been more connected and we've never been more disconnected at the same time. Because we're just so, we're just, we're in, we're in this moment, we're just so wrapped up in our device. My phone, every Sunday morning, dings and tells me, you know, my average number of minutes on my phone throughout the last week. You know, I just, yeah, this, you've been on every day. This, you know, and I, I do a lot of podcasting on my phone sometimes when I'm out. So, yeah, but, but yeah, how much time do we spend? And we're so connected and so What if we put down our devices and pursued the people around us more? As one person said it, we think because our feet are there, we are there. Yet the truth is we are a spirit that has a soul. We just live in our body. Our feet may be planted in one place while we are entirely somewhere else. Let me me just read this closing illustration here and we'll close with this today, really. New Year's resolution, rediscover boredom in the smartphone age. Smartphones have changed the way we inhabit public space and more specifically how we fill our time while waiting. Consequently, daydreaming, thinking, speculating, observing, and people watching 
are diminishing arts. So what happens when you put down your phone, look up, and start noticing? Though hotly contested, the social, physical, and cognitive effects of our slavish devotion to the smartphones are said to include symptoms and risk factors such as neck problems, limited attention span, interrupted sleep, antisocial behavior, accidents, and other health risks. Rarely mentioned in this litany of side effects is how phone use has changed the way we inhabit, inhabit public space and, more specifically, how we fill our time while waiting. Every moment of potential boredom can now be uh, ameliorated or avoided by all manner of tasks, modes of entertainment, or other distractions conveniently provided courtesy of our mini-computer. Some years back, in response to my own smartphone symptoms, I decided to look up from my screen and look around. We constantly use electronic devices to distract ourselves from the tedium associated with waiting. Instead, we could see boredom as an invitation to look up and then look around to people. To, to look around, to people watch, to daydream, or take the time to observe and develop our own observation of the beauty of the world beyond hyperlinks and tags. That's Julie Shields. What a great thing, right? Like we have our phones and, and we see it all the time. We're waiting somewhere and we're just connected to and, and we're not in the moment and instead of looking around, embracing the boredom of the moment, it just what's going on in the world around me? What is the spirit doing in the world around me? Because being fully present means that I am fully aware to what the Holy Spirit is doing in me, through me, and around me. So, are you living for today? Are you living for tomorrow? Hopefully you're living for both. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the year ahead. I don't know what you have in store. Uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for everyone in this room, how they bless my life, how we, have, how, how we have grown and moved, and I know you have exciting things in store for us in the year ahead. I just know you're moving. You're showing me your work. It's just amazing to see people growing and I'm just so excited. Lord, help us all this, this year, this week, this day, this year to just be fully present. May this be our New Year's resolution just to be fully present in the moment. Yeah, just to know who we are in Christ and just be fully present as you are. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Thank you.